good afternoon. Today I'm talking to Angela Wren. Hi, Angela. Would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about yourself? Okay, great. Thanks for interviewing me today, uh, Donna. It's a, a real pleasure to be here. Um, I'm Angela Wren, and uh, I write the Jacques Foray um, cosy crime stories, which are set in the Cévennes in south-central France. Um, it's an area of the country that I love to visit, and I have visited quite often, so it kind of just seemed quite logical to me when I first had an idea for book that I would set it in the Savannah in France. Um, but uh, obviously way back in 2007 when I had that very very first idea um, I had no idea about writing books so <laughs> it was a very steep learning curve. Luckily um, before I was a writer I did have a proper job but it was in an office and I was doing all sorts of drafting um, for strategy documents, communication documents, and so on. So it was business drafting. So whilst I was very used to writing, it was quite a different format uh, to creative writing. So I kind of had to start from scratch. And um, that first book, Missandriere, um, didn't get published until 2015 because it took me that long to write it <laughs> and to understand my new craft and to learn the new skills required to enable me to write it. So, um, but since then, it's kind of been a, a bit of a roller coaster, really, one book after the other. Um, and I've just published book five today. So, it's been quite a hectic day, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations on your new release. Um, and uh, do you want to tell us a little bit more about it? Uh, yes, well, book five is called Macaw. And all my books begin with the letter M and they have a single title. Um, I guess there's some things that sometimes you really ought to challenge one's publisher about them <laughs> rather than just going along with it. But anyway, they all look very neat and tidy with just the one word titles all beginning with M. Uh, Mercor is uh, an old French surname. And uh, it dates from the sort of 14th, 15th, 16th century. And um, there are a couple of small villages in over towards the west coast of France who bear that name. But in the area where I write, that I write about, the Cévennes, um, the village, the name is more akin to a very ancient dukedom or a fiefdom of some sort from around that area and the surrounding département. It's a murder. Um, however, my uh, investigator, Jacques Foray, he uh, thinks that he's actually investigating not just one murder, but five others as well. Uh, but these are all historical. And uh, so he has a great deal of difficulty trying to tie everything together and to make the connections between these various different people who have died at different times since 2009. Um, and uh, it tests him <laughs> quite a bit, um, but he has his little team of people that work with him because he, he has his own private investigation uh, firm, which is located in the city of Monde, which is a real place. Um, love that little town. Um, I mean, it's a city by French standards, but by our standards, it would just be a small town. And so he has his uh, business there, right in the centre of town. And um, he has uh, a couple of people who work with him. Didier Duclos is like his right-hand man, um, a retired police officer. And um, Thibault Clerc, uh, somebody that Jacques used to work with when he was in the gendarmerie uh, also joins the team during the course of this book to help out with the uh, really rather complex investigation. Um, I don't really want to say too much more. So start vital clues away. <laughs> <if I do. laughs> but feel free to ask, and if I can, I will. <laughs> um, did you always want to be a writer? Oh, God. <laughs> I'm going to have to admit something now, aren't I? Um, I, I think, yeah, underneath it all, I, I probably did always want to be a writer. Um, when I was a kid at school, um, 
I did have a stammer. And one of the ways my parents dealt with that was by sending me to uh, speech and drama lessons. And that was when I was first introduced to Shakespeare. I was only six years old. I mean, obviously we didn't cover the plays or anything, but there were little snippets, little lines and little phrases that my uh, speech and drama teacher would use to help us to get over the difficulty with our speech. So being introduced to Shakespeare so early and I found his use of words fascinating. I guess that fascination with words has always been with me from then. And uh, at the great and incredibly wise old age of seven, I do remember saying to an elderly <laughs> aunt, when I grew up, I wanted to be Shakespeare. And why any child of seven would want to be a 400 year old mouldering body is, is quite beyond me. But I've never really been able to explain that <laughs> to anybody else or myself even. But, um, but yes, that thing about writing has been with me ever since then. And of course, school exams get in the way, don't they? And then life in general, work, needing to pay the mortgage and all that sort of stuff just gets in the way. And I was a business change and project manager when I was doing my proper job, uh, which was extremely pressured, uh, very, very demanding. And really it was only when I managed to escape that that uh, I, I realized that I, I could do something uh, with regard to writing. And I started out writing short stories and I've, I guess I've just um, followed the same path right through until now. And now writing creatively is something that I just have to do. It's just a thing I have to do. I don't, it's not that I, uh, sort of set myself off from nine until 12 today I will write just because I've got to write I, I just do it because I want to and I need to so yeah it does that make me a writer I don't know maybe it does <laughs> you've got five books so you're definitely a writer <laughs> um, and if you have you been a big reader oh god yeah yeah an avid reader from being very, very small. Uh, one of my earliest memories is, is being in uh, Foyle's bookshop in London. I'd only be about half, uh, three and a half, maybe just four. Um, my dad's family came from London. So we were there on holiday visiting relatives. And the treat that day was to be taken to Foyle's bookshop. And I was given some coins to hold in my sticky little mitts and, and I could actually go and pick the book and pay for it myself. And yeah, and that little book, it was one of those rag books that children used to have. And uh, that little book went with me absolutely everywhere until it met its demise in my mother's washing machine about three or four years later. <laughs> <laughs> Very well worn. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've never stopped reading since, to be honest. And even though I spend a lot of time writing, I still make time to read. Um, I think I think you have to, don't you? Um, how do you know what the competition is doing if you don't read the books? How do you know what other good ideas are floating about out there unless you read other people's books? So, yeah, love reading. Do you have any preference of genre or will you read anything? Oh, I read just about anything, really. Well, apart from erotica, I'm not keen on that. Um, but, yeah, uh, my favourite genres are obviously crime I quite like thrillers as long as they're not too gory but I love romance too and uh, I have have and do read sci-fi from time to time fantasy I've read all the, the Game of Thrones books uh, as well as a fair few others um, so I, I read virtually anything and everything including non-fiction too I've got some uh, I've got some fabulous books I've been reading recently, non-fiction. Uh, Smugglers of Timbuktu, for instance, that's a fascinating book. And then there's Along the Amber Route. Um, that's all about amber, when it was first discovered, how long it's been around, and you know how it got across from the Baltic coast through to the rest of Europe. Absolutely fascinating read. It's, it was uh, a travel journal, a history, as well as, you know, an interesting piece of uh, 
geology really. So yeah, read anything and everything, frankly, just about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm the same. I'll read anything. Hmm. Um, I mean, you miss out on so much if you don't. I think so, yeah. Yeah, you do. You do. I even uh, so what made you decide to write Cozy Crime? I think, uh, I suppose, I suppose I have to um, lay this at uh, the foot of three other writers. Um, I started out writing romance, to be honest, because my very first idea was for a romance and I joined the Romantic Novelist Association. I'm still a member and I still do write romantic stories, but I don't, I don't think I've really got uh, any ideas for a whole romantic novel. But I started out writing romance and then another author friend of mine who was also working hard to get published and to get her book right so that it could go to an agent or a publisher she said to me i've come across this new course it looks really good it's only a few miles from where we live do you want to come as well so i looked at it and saw that uh three two authors that i read michael fowler and danuta ray were running it there was also alison taft who was uh, who worked for a publisher as well as being a writer. And although at that point I hadn't read any of her books, I have since, and they're brilliant. Um, so I thought, oh yeah, why don't I do this? And then I thought, and then I looked at it and thought, well, that's about crime. It's about writing a crime novel. And I kind of thought, but I'm trying to write romance. Anyway, I went along for the ride. It was a brilliant workshop, but during the course of those uh, three, four days, um, we were allocated individual time with one of the three tutors and uh, Alison Taft was uh, the person who was allocated to me and um, I reached a point where it became quite clear to me that I had to answer one question and that one question was am I writing romance or do I really want to write crime and uh, at the end of the workshop I'd more or less made up my mind that the book that I was currently working on, which did have some dark uh, uh, sections in it, and there was a body, I thought to myself, this isn't, this isn't romantic suspense. I thought, this is crime. This is real, honest-to-goodness crime. And um, immediately after the workshop, I then spent the next month and a half completely refocusing the story, making the, the body and the investigation of... of the crime, the central plot. So that meant I had to expand it a great deal. And the romance element just went to, uh, became a subplot. And um, that was Missandriere, and uh, that was the book that was first published in 2015. So it was just the right choice, I think. And that workshop came up at just the right time. It was serendipity. <laughs> um. If you were to be a character in your books, would you get on with your characters? <laughs> wow, what a question. Um, although I'm not personally in my books, um, I do live with my characters when I'm writing the stories. Um, you know, Jack is always in my head. And um, yeah, I have people in the village of Missandriere um, some of them are really nice people. Some of them are not quite so nice. Like uh, Monsieur Roussel, Femier Roussel. He's a bit blustery. He can be quite short-tempered. And he can be difficult. But there's also um, Guy Delacroix. He's an elderly farmer. And um, he's not a very happy man. And he hasn't had a very happy life. And he has occasionally been um, prosecuted for poaching. And, you know, he's, he has a string of petty crimes to his name over the years. So I probably wouldn't get on very well with him particularly. But um, most of the other characters, yes. Um, and, you know, and thinking about the other books, yeah, there are characters in there that I would get on well with and, and some not so much. They're usually my villains. 
That's good to know. <laughs> um, have you found any extra challenges by setting them in France? Um, yeah, yeah, to a certain extent. As, as well as I know the area of the Savannah and the towns and the villages in and around uh, where my fictitious village is located, uh, as well as I know them, there are still things about France that, that I'm learning. Um, and uh, for instance, Montbell, my book Montbell is, is set in a restaurant. And uh, I had to do quite a bit of research to find out how restaurants work, you know, the hierarchy in the kitchen and the terminology that's used in France, because, you know, we talk about a chef and I know it is an imported word, but then we also talk about uh, pastry chefs and, and so on. Well, the, there's a very, very specific terminology for all of that in France. And so I spent about uh, oh, a month, six weeks doing a whole stack of research to cover that. Um, I am lucky in that I do have French friends who, who are born and bred French people. And so, you know, if I get stuck with something, I can uh, email them or, you know, give them a ring. Um, there's also a, a French national that I work with on the Moonshine books too, Marie Laval. She's a French author and she was born in France and uh, but she came over here and uh, works here now. Um, so when I'm stuck on something, I can always uh, get in touch with Marie if I need to. Um, but yeah, I'm always learning something new. And every year when I go back, there's usually something that I find out that I didn't know before. Um, but how can you learn about a whole country, you know, in a short time? I mean, we're born and bred here, and I bet we don't know everything about our own country, do we? <laughs> Out of all the research that you've done so far, what's the most interesting thing you've found out? I guess the most interesting research has been the research I've done for the latest book, Macor. Um, a lot of the action in that book is set on Mont Mima, which is uh, a fairly substantial mountain about 1,200 uh, uh, 1, metres high, which is like 30,000 feet above sea level. Um, and uh, that overlooks the city of Monde. And um, when I was first looking into using that uh, setting uh, a, a crime up on that mountain, obviously I had to go and have a look at it and, and see what was there and what wasn't there. And um, I was very, very surprised to find that there were two abandoned villages way up on, on the mountain. And the houses have been preserved, so they're a bit like a museum. And you can go and see them um, if you get the uh, if you get the route map from the tourist office in the city of Mond. And that was fascinating. Um, and I thought to myself, well, this is a ready-made place for me to either hide a body or hide something in connection with the crime. And in the end, what, what I decided to do was to create another much smaller village about three, four hundred metres away from the smallest of the two that, two that are, are there, the abandoned villages, and use that as uh, my location for the body and for whatever else I needed. And that's the village of Mekor, and hence the title. And um, because I needed to dig back into history, I actually had to do some research. And I had to do all this online because, of course, over this last year, I've not been able to go anywhere. Um, I had to do all of that online, and that meant contacting the French archives to find out which farms were, what the names of some farms were, um, where they were more or less located. So I've pinched a few names from the real abandoned villages. <laughs> to use for my, um, for my fictitious village. And um, obviously I needed to know what the houses look like inside. And uh, so, yeah, a lot of painstaking historical research, but absolutely fascinating. And 
there's hardly any of it in the books, unfortunately. If anybody's thinking <laughs> they can have a nice historical read, sorry, the research was just for me so that I know what to say and how to say it, and you know, to get things right, like the 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 um, the tiles on the floors of the cottages would have all been limestone, and it would have been very thin limestone cut from the limestone rock of the mountain itself, and that kind of thing. But yeah, brilliant. Brilliant. Spent many happy hours doing that. <laughs> yeah, that sounds amazing. I love the sound of that. <laughs> I might have to look at it myself. <laughs> well, if you do, I hope you enjoy it. And thank you. <laughs> um, uh, do you, which of your characters do you have most fun writing? Um, in the first, in the first four books. That was Pierre Mansell. He's a little kid who lives in the village. And when at first I thought I, when I was planning the first four books, I thought that I wouldn't need Pierre until book three. But as I was writing book one, because I'd done all my planning and I knew what characters I needed at a later date, I found that Pierre kept on running onto the page and introducing himself in, into scenes with, with, with uh, Jacques. And by the time I got to the end of my first draft, I thought, oh, I'm going to have to do something and get these scenes out. But when I was going through editing for my second draft, I thought, no, no, I can put Pierre in this story. I can keep him in there and I can give him a role. So on my second draft, that was what I actually did. And I put back some of the stuff that I'd already taken out. And Pierre appears to a greater or lesser extent in each of the three stories that follow on. And I loved writing him because he was such a, a nice little kid. And I mean, he's five in the first book and he has his sixth birthday and he trots into the gendarmerie and brings Jack a piece of birthday cake and stuff. You know? <laughs> and then there are scenes where he's trundling around the village on his bike and always wanting to help Jack because his ambition is to be a policeman himself. So he was really great fun to write. In the fourth book, um, the fourth book is really Pierre's story. And uh, so writing him in that book was really quite sad at times and quite difficult because of what happens to him. But uh, now we're in, and now I've just written McCaw, and um, Pierre is still in that book, but he's he's slightly older, and he's turning into a grumpy teenager. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of gone off him a bit now. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he will feature in other books later, and I'm I'm sure he will be he will turn out to be an incredibly nice young man. But at the moment, he's he's grumpy teenager, and I don't want to know. <laughs> in this last book, in this last book, my favourite character to write has been Thibaut Clegg, uh, the retired gendarme, uh, who knows Jack from when he was working in the gendarmerie. And um, I've actually brought Thibaut back. He is in the first book. He also appears in a couple of scenes in the uh, second and third book but you know only as a very incidental matter um, <clears throat> but in this book he's actually got a role to play and I have absolutely loved writing Thibaut because it meant I could get to know him again and um, also develop him as a character further because of course now that he's retired from the gendarmerie and um, his wife having got both her daughters packed off and married she now needs a focus <laughs> and her focus was and the painting and decorating in the house and the gardening etc etc so um, some of their exchanges between those two have been really quite fun to write <laughs> <laughs> um, when you wrote your first book did you know that you were going to write a series i knew i'd got four stories I knew definitely I'd got four stories and I knew that there would be certain connections between the first book and the second book and then uh, another connection between the second book and the third and the fourth. Um, so yeah, there was a progression there, but at the time when I actually sat down to write Missandriere, 
the crimes in the other three books were quite sketchy, um, but I knew what crimes they were. So I knew that the second book would be um, <clears throat> commercial um, sabotage. Uh, and I placed that very much in a business setting and I used my background as a project manager to help me um, write that authentically, or at least I hope it's authentic. Um, the third book has a historical element to it uh, and Jack is uh, thrown back into thinking about Paris, which is where he was born and brought up, and, um, <clears throat> and about the history of Paris. So that required a bit of research. And again, I had a vague idea of what the crime was, but I didn't know how far back the uh, threads of that crime stretched until I actually started writing it and properly fleshing out the characters. Um, so, but yes, yeah, there, there were those elements there. I didn't know when I first started writing Asandria that, that, that there was going to be a book five because I'd only thought, thought uh, those three books ahead. Um, but once I got to Montbell, the third book, I knew definitely then that there were going to be more books. And yet again, I just got this sketchy idea of what the crime was for each one. Um, and for instance, I know now and knew back then when I was writing Montbell that in the eighth book, Jack would have to deal with a family death. Uh, and looking at my time scale, what I didn't know when I was writing on Bell was that um, that would come up in the time frame of the books in 2020. So, of course, when I was writing on Bell, I didn't know what was going to happen to us <laughs> over this last 12 months. <laughs> that has significantly changed how that book is going to work. And um, although I know that the crime is, um, well, the crime is about hidden secrets and, um, <clears throat> and hidden benefits as a result of those secrets, that, uh, but I know that I'm, I'm going to have to handle it very differently from how I first envisaged it, you know, a couple of years ago, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thanks to that. I suppose it's going to change a lot of things, especially if people include times in their books. And it's, mm. a, it's a quite debated question, isn't it, whether to include it or not? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I'm currently writing two short stories for two very different anthologies. And because they're basically contemporaneous anthologies, we have been debating between us whether we should accept that COVID is out there and how are we going to handle it or not? And I, I'm, I'm very much in the camp of no, let's not. People have had a hard enough time. Let's, let's take them out of this and give them something hopeful and something uh, good to read so that they've got a little bit of respite from the difficulties that we're, we're still facing. And I know things are looking more positive, but we still don't know for sure that we are going to be out of this in June or May or whenever it is. So I'm very much of that camp, but because of the way my books are structured, I, when I come to write the book that's set in 2020, I know I can't avoid it. But at least I'll be in a better position then because I'm not still living through it. And exactly. one, of the, <laughs> one of the reasons why I first said, no, let's not include it was because I, I'm very much aware that I'm living through it and, and I just don't want to write about that. I want to write about other stuff that takes me out of it. And I think I think a lot of people will probably think the same too, probably. Yeah, um, I think generally, um, and I was in the camp of, I don't want to read it, but I've read a couple of books where it's been mentioned and I find that I'm not bothered. I'm quite surprised actually. I think because we're so used to it, just uh, the sanitising and putting on a mask, generally that's all that's mentioned. And we're so used to it, I think, that it doesn't, you know, it's just part of the book. It doesn't really. So, mm. yeah, I was surprised by how little I was bothered when it was mentioned. Oh, right. Well, okay, yeah. I, I, I know there's a, there's a Peter May book, I think, 
or at least I think it's Peter May, um, that was that he, I think he repackaged and published for free during lockdown. And uh, a couple of my friends said to me, oh, aren't you going to read it? And I went, no, no, this is enough. <laughs> I don't want to read about it. <laughs> yeah, because I might. Mm -hmm. No, not at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's got a new book out, um, and that talks about the pandemic. So that's one of the ones. But yeah, it's. I mean, it goes back in time as well to the war. So obviously, there's quite a lot where it isn't mentioned. But yeah, it was. It was fine. It didn't didn't change anything about the story. It was just one of those things. You know, that they had to sit away and they had to put a mask on to go. That was it, really. It was it was fine. Oh, OK. Yeah. Um, would you give any of your characters a spin-off? Um, no, I don't think so. I don't think I would. Well, not the characters I'm working with the moment Lynette and uh, they all the, the dynamics between all of those characters I think if I moved one out or sent one off on a different journey some of those dynamics would be lost and um, yeah I'm, 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 I'm too happy with the group as they are at the moment but having said that um, one of the short stories that I'm writing is about a character that I actually created oh, way back in uh, 2004, 2005, I think, something like that. And um, I sent her to France to become a kind of um, amateur sleuth, I suppose. But she was also there to be um, romanced as well, because this was one another romance that, that I thought I, I could write. But I kept on introducing these puzzles and I realised that that wasn't going to work. So I just put it all to one side. But now that this opportunity has come up to uh, write a, a story for a new anthology, um, I thought to myself, yes. Alice will fit this very well. So I'm, I'm bringing her forward. I'm creating a special little story just for her to introduce her. And because this anthology is being created over in the States, if it goes down well and the story goes down well, then that means I've got a potential new market for a new set of stories with Alice as the central character and other people uh, around her at the, the chateau, at Chateau Chevigny in central France. So it would, it would work and I, I'm, I guess I'm just using her to test the water, but that's the nearest I've come to your suggestion so far. <laughs> um, what's your ultimate dream as a writer? Uh, I've got it, I think. I've already got it. <laughs> um, I've, I've got a brilliant publisher, Crooked Cat, and uh, they publish my books under their dark stroke imprint. They're really supportive. Uh, I work with an absolutely great bunch of authors from across the world, because uh, Crooked Cat, Stroke, Dark Stroke, um, publish... Uh, authors from all over the world. Um, so there's a wealth of experience there that I can draw on if I need it. And we swap and change ideas all the time amongst us. There's a wealth of support available to me as well. Um, so for instance, today, colleagues have been copying out my posts and stuff about the new book and retweeting my tweets and all the rest of it has been going mad. <laughs> um, and so, yeah. Getting that publishing contract, that was uh, an absolute high like I've never experienced before. And I'm kind of still up there really. 
uh, every time I get a new contract, you know, for, for the new book, it's just the same. I'm dancing on the ceiling for about four days afterwards. <laughs> so, yeah, this is it. This is it. Um, because I've worked a lot in theatre as well, people often say to me, oh, don't you want don't you want your books on stage or on screen or whatever? Don't you want films? And um, actually, no, I don't. I'm not bothered. Um, I really like my books as they are and my characters as they are on the page. And I know that if I sold the rights to a TV company or a film company, they they change them. Because what works on film and TV doesn't necessarily work on the page. You know, when you've got a reader in front of you, they need more information. They need you to describe things and, and so on. Whereas in a split second, a camera can do a whole page of work, can't they? Yeah. And I'm also very much aware that uh, with other TV adaptations, how much the stories can be changed because of the, the dramatic impact. And I wouldn't want that. I'm really happy just scribbling away day after day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't blame you. It sounds amazing. <laughs> um, apart from your publisher, do you have lots of other author friends? Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, I'm a member of the Romantic Novelist Association, as, as I said earlier. I'm also a member of the Crime Writers Association. And um, if we can ever meet up in big groups again, I will be going back to their conferences. And that's when you meet most people. Um, those weekends can be incredibly emotionally draining because you're spending all your time chatting to people and catching up with people you've not seen for ages and ages. Um, I meet regularly with writer friends. Uh, I, I run a, a writer's group locally. And so we have a mixture of people within that who are aspiring writers. Some are poets. Uh, some others are also published like me and, and some are on their way to being published. Uh, and a couple of them are with the new writers scheme for the Romantic Novelist Association. So I spend a lot of time with them on a regular basis. And um, there are various other groups of authors that I meet up with. Um, the ones in America, it's just e-meeting them uh, to handle this anthology that we're hoping to publish. And with the Miss Moonshine anthologies, we're on to anthology three now. Uh, I'm working on that. And um, the other eight authors, we meet up every once in a while in Hebden Bridge when we can. Obviously, it's been quite a while since our last meeting, but we are looking forward to maybe meeting towards the end of this year, maybe late summer, if we can. <laughs> um, and do you get a lot of feedback from your readers? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, when I was able to go out and talk to people, um, it was quite interesting to hear what people had to say, you know, when I was doing presentations and that sort of thing and, and doing Q&A sessions. That was always fascinating because afterwards I would always find myself thinking about questions, what might have prompted the question if, the, if nobody said and thinking about how I might change things as a result. Um, I do read my reviews, um, all of them, good or bad. Um, I think reviews are important um, one because they help sell your book when they're really good and if they're not so good they are uh, something for you as an author to think about um, having worked in communications in a business world I'm very much aware that um, you can't please all the people all the time and to try to do so would be very foolish uh, and extremely stressful uh, so I'm quite pragmatic about it. And uh, when I look at my reviews, the bad ones, I sort of think, well, okay, what can I pick out of this? Um, obviously, um, when I get a bad review because it wasn't delivered on time, I kind of think, okay, fair enough. I understand why you're disappointed, but, you know, I'm not responsible for the post office or... <laughs> Or for Amazon not getting it right. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, there's, I kind of look at those and think, okay, fair enough. 
but there are occasions when you know a reviewer will say well i really wasn't happy with that particular scene or i was really disappointed in that particular character and those things always make me stop and think and consider what could i have done better and am i in danger of falling into the same trap with what i'm working on at the moment and if i am how am i going to put it right and and I think so in that respect I think reviews are very very important um, and I do read them um, obviously over this next month or so I'm going to be looking for reviews from the core uh, avidly uh, probably every day that's how I usually am when the book first goes out <laughs> <laughs> settled <laughs> once it's settled down then you know it's once a week once a month as as the need dictates but yes and I'll just say thank you to all reviewers I love you. I really do. <laughs> um, so when you're not writing and you're not reading, what do you like to do? Oh, go to France, of course. <laughs> I spend, or at least I did when I could travel, I, d I spend three months of the year away in France. Um, obviously, last year that didn't happen. And it's probably not going to happen this year. I might get a few weeks towards the end of summer, beginning of autumn, if I'm lucky. But we'll see how that works out. So, yeah, I spend quite a lot of time in France. Um, I love theatre and have always been a member of a local theatre group uh, from being a child. Again, that was my speech and drama teacher who got me into that. Um, so I help out at a local theatre as and when I can. We actually, we don't own the building, but we lease the building, but we, we are the theatre group that runs and manages the whole of the building and, and uh, all the shows that we put on there. So I help out there as much as I possibly can. In fact, sometimes it's too much because then I'm sort of writing at nine and ten o'clock at night because uh, <laughs> spent too much time in theatre. <laughs> um, so there's that. Um, uh, I also have my writing group and then of course there are talks and so on and uh, as soon as we're able to uh, travel and move around I will be uh, looking to arrange events for talks and to be at fairs selling books and that sort of thing. Um, that's about it really. Um, I kind of don't do knitting or anything like that. <laughs> I am a member of the Village Book Club. Um, so we used to meet once a month. Now we kind of just do it on WhatsApp. But hopefully we'll be able to get round to meeting for an afternoon once a month again soonish. But we'll <laughs> see. Um, and yeah, that's about it really. Uh, what's the last book that made you cry? The last book that made me cry? Um, the last book was, I guess, um, In This House of Breed by Ruma Godden. Um, yes, I had tears streaming down my face. <laughs> uh, so that was the last novel that, that made me cry. And it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating book. Uh, the central character is called Philippa and having worked in the business world for most of her life, she then joins a convent. Uh, but she has something in her past uh, about her son. And it's when you get to, I think it's back chapter 20, or at least it's chapter 20 in my book. That's when you find out what actually happened to her son. And it's absolutely, oh, it really is. Um, it's gut-wrenching, absolutely gut-wrenching. And the pain of the character comes through beautifully. Uh, Rumor Godden is a brilliant writer. It comes through beautifully. And in actual fact, the last time I read that book, I was sat um, in the awning on a campsite in France and there were tears pouring down my face. <laughs> but it is, it's so emotionally draining. Um, the last uh, piece of non-fiction that I read that made me cry was um, The Infiltrators. Uh, that's about uh, the Second World War and it's set in Germany and it's about uh, a couple who were seeking to undermine the Nazi regime. And obviously 
they and uh, the people who were working with them were mostly shot or executed. Uh, but that that is an incredibly difficult read towards the end. That also made me cry. Um, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I think the last bit that made me cry was about the Second World War as well. Mm. So, yeah, mm. it's, a, it's a, a good achievement to do that. But, yeah, it's, it's emotionally... Though. Yeah, emotionally draining because, yeah, I mean, and authors that can do that to you, they, they to my mind, they've obviously done the meticulous research, got the feeling and everything right. Uh, for, for the scenes that they are uh, presenting to you as a reader and, and yeah that's that's good that's very good <laughs> yeah um if you were able to go back in any uh, to any period in history where would you go back to oh gosh i would go back to um the very late uh 1700s about 1799, 1800, 1801, around that period. And I would want to be in London, and there's a specific coffee house that I would want to be in. Um, I've seen the old maps, and I know where it is, roughly, on the old maps. And the reason why I'd want to be there is because I have an ancestor in my family tree, and I can't find anything out about him. The furthest I've been able to track back is to him being a, a young boy in that coffee house and he was working as a pot boy. And um, it says that on the documentation that I've been able to look at in the archives, it says that he's 15 years old at that point. And all I know about him is that he wasn't born in London. I don't know where he was born. Um, so I, I would want, I would have to be back there in that coffee house so that I could talk to that pot boy and ask him about his family and ask him why he's alone because I can't seem to find any brothers or sisters for him either. And I mean, it could be because they're, say, somewhere out in Essex or Kent, I don't know. Um, and he's just left them at home because he's the eldest boy for whatever reason. But um, yeah, I would want to sit him down and quiz him about the family. <laughs> Um, if you were to have um, a dinner party invite for famous people, who would you invite? Oh, I would have to have William Shakespeare there. Absolute must. Um, I think I would like to have Alan Bennett, the playwright, too, and his counterpart, Michael Frayne, uh, another fabulous playwright, both really real favourites of mine. Um, and I guess... Well, I can only have four. Oh, rats. Um, I guess the other person would have to be, yes, balance things out a bit if there's only four of us. The other person would have to be Agatha Christie. I love her books. And in fact, I remember being about 12-ish and uh, being in the library with my mum. And whilst my mum was busy talking to the lady librarian, I snuck across to the other side of the room and started looking along the adult shelves and uh, discovered Agatha Christie. And then every week when I went back to get more books with my mum, took another one out. <laughs> and I just read absolutely everything that she wrote after that. Um, there are a few other people I could uh, mention as well, but okay, you said four. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> you can uh, have substitutes just in case. <laughs> oh, um, one of my substitutes would have to be uh, Wilkie Collins or maybe uh, Arthur Conan Doyle. <laughs> um, I suppose one of the substitutes for um, Michael Frayne or Alan Bennett could be Alan Akebourne or um, Minette Walters. I love her books absolutely love her books um or peter james i like his books too so <laughs> <laughs> um if you you were stranded on a desert island what three things would you want i'd have to have my complete works of shakespeare with me uh i'd have to have uh 
my Thomas Hardy's uh, complete book of poetry. And I guess I would have to have probably my Chaucer. Hmm. Yeah. Canterbury Tales, I think. So you're not planning on escaping then, you're just going to go and just chill and read on an island? <laughs> well, you know, if it's a desert island, it won't rain much, will it? And there'll be no snow, and the, the atmosphere will be quite pleasant. Um, and yeah, I'd be quite happy to sit there reading stuff that I know I can read and reread and still find something new in it and wait for somebody to come and fetch me. That'd be fine. <laughs> Wouldn't it bother you that you couldn't write though? Um, no, because you can write inside your head, can't you? <laughs> and I have got quite a phenomenal memory. That's uh, years of working in project management and, of course, uh, years learning lines. It does train your memory. So, um, yeah, I, I would just write in my head and keep it there. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what's coming next for you? <laughs> At the moment, a bit of a break <laughs> after today. <laughs> uh, then um, uh, next week, I need to uh, finish the Miss Moonshine story, get that sorted. In fact, I'll probably be back working on that uh, on Thursday or Friday, I would expect, to get it finished. And then uh, in April next month, I need to start my story for the uh, American Anthology. And then after that... Um, I'm not sure. Probably some research for book six, I would expect. Awesome. Um, <laughs> I don't think I have any more questions for you unless you think there's anything I haven't asked that you want to tell us. No, no, that's fine. That's absolutely fine. They're quite testing questions, really. <laughs> um, so do you just want to tell everyone where they can find out more about you and where they can find your book? Yep, I, I have a website. Uh, it's called angelawren.co.uk and that's uh, A-N-G-E-L-A-W-R-E-N, -E -E all as one word. Um, I also have a blog, which I write every Tuesday, and that's James Aimois, that's J-A-M-E-S-E-T-M-O-I, uh, .blogspot.com. And actually, if you just type in uh, James Aimois, that should, uh, that should bring it up for you. Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm also on Twitter and on Instagram. So anyone can follow me on any one of those uh, social media platforms if they wish to. And it'd be nice awesome. to meet them. <laughs> um, if you want to put a link to the anthologies and everything on my page when they're ready and stuff, then feel free. You can, um, you know, advertise them. That's fine. <laughs> That's brilliant. Thank you very much, Tom. That's great. Thank you. Awesome. And thank you very much. Okay, and thank you. Nice to meet you. <laughs>